0: All right, so welcome to the, the first ever live show of Politics in Question. We've been doing this podcast since 2019,
1: and Woo-hoo! Can, can we laugh? I mean, can we clap? And not laugh. Don't no. laugh. Don't laugh. Clap. And we're going to edit me asking you to clap out of the recording, right? That's
0: right. Yeah. So we are we're here um, in front of a, a live audience of college students and professors from around the country at the Washington Center, Washington, D.C. We've got. Uh, an audience of different disciplines and fields of study. Um, So, But as usual, uh, we're your three hosts. So I'm Julia Azari, I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University, and I study the presidency and American political parties.
2: I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America, a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University, uh, I, I write about political parties and electoral reform, and my most recent book is Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi Party Democracy in America. And I recently co-founded an organization called Fix Our House to advance proportional representation in the U.S.
1: Not your renovation. Uh, I, re- I already did my renovation. Yeah. It's beautiful. Because that way. would be very smart to start a nonprofit profit to I, fix I, your I house. I know. <laughs> uh, the,
2: my, my new kitchen sometime, I'll have you guys over. It'll oh, be, really? be... I'll make a beautiful, beautiful meal. A Perfect. lot of bean sprouts. Lot, yeah, of, and yeah. beans. If you like yeah. to eat, don't... Kale salad, don't anybody? To, yeah, it's going to be no, a of no, l- no, I mean, spinach. I mean,
1: my my grilled uh, romaine lettuce is amazing. <laughs> and I'm James Wallner. I like meat. I like barbecue. I like all kinds of good food, right? Uh, I am a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And here in Washington, D.C., I'm a uh, lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I basically work for Lee and Julia. <laughs> so I do whatever you tell me.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. That's what we like to you hear. Give me some more
2: coffee.
1: <laughs> as soon as we're done.
2: Okay. Thank you.
0: All right. So our topic today is the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna chat amongst ourselves for a few minutes. Then we're gonna take some questions, which our students are submitting through Poll Everywhere. So here's where we're starting from. We're recording this on May twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. We're a few weeks after a leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that suggested that the court was poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, which is the the Supreme Court decision from 1973 that guarantees the the right to an abortion, the leaked text also suggested that lots of other rights, including same sex marriage and birth control, might be up for reconsideration as well. So recent polls have suggested that 68 percent of the public disagrees with overturning the decision. A big question coming out of this is, will this lead to even more public distrust of the courts, more mass demonstrations, more support for court packing, which was the topic for uh, consideration a little bit in the 2020 election? How can the Supreme Court be held accountable? Does this fit the model of calling balls and strikes that John Roberts talked about in his confirmation hearing mm-hmm. back in 2005? So, I, you know, I've really been thinking a lot about these questions of what do we do with a Supreme Court that, that doesn't seem to be um, accountable to, to public opinion. Lee, do you want to address that a little?
2: Well, so much here, so much here to talk about. In The Supreme Court, I mean, I, I think the, the sort of standard political science on the Supreme Court for a long time has been the Supreme Court moves slowly, but eventually it catches up with public opinion. Exactly. And I think what's happening now is something really different. That the Supreme Court is actually going in the opposite direction of public opinion when you, you know, I think that we have a, a Supreme Court that is not really paying attention to its its legitimacy as much in this moment, or the conservatives on the Supreme Court. I think I think John Roberts cares about the legitimacy of the court, and he's in a tough position. And we had Amanda Hollis-Bruski on uh, earlier this year, who's a scholar of the Supreme Court, and she... Said you know Roberts is losing control of the court now. I, I think there's a larger question here, uh, you know, which is the the role of the Supreme Court in our political system. As, as James and I have talked a lot about what when Congress is broken and the political process is broken, we wind up punting all of the important questions to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court becomes the arbiter of all of the really controversial, hard questions that. Congress doesn't want to have to deal with, but what's happened also in this particular moment is that the Supreme Court has become extremely counter-majoritarian in in its in, in the way that people have been appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, that uh, although the Democrats have won the popular vote for the presidency seven of the last eight elections, although not always winning the presidency, we can tackle that gets into the Electoral College. Uh, Demo- uh, senators representing Democrats have represented more voters than Republicans for almost 40 years, except for a few exceptions in that period, they haven't represented the uh, po- popular majority since 97, 98. Uh, somehow, uh, the presidency and the Senate you know, appoint the Supreme Court. And now we have a six to three conservative majority on the court, which is <laughs> Which is really weird. I'm not sure we've ever had that level of imbalance, but we've also never had this level of polarization. So there are a lot of things that the Supreme Court is downstream of right now in our partisan, polariz- hyperpartisan polarization. The way in which the Electoral College and the Senate uh, are, are have become countermajority institutions, and the Supreme Court is. You know the, the product of that, as well as some chance. So I, I don't know how the Supreme Court can could maintain legitimacy in this moment, no matter what. I mean, you can't expect an institution to kind of render independent judgment when everything is so hyper partisan and there's nothing that's seen as independent anymore. But I think we still have this kind of myth that the Supreme Court should be this independent arbiter. And I you know I think the leak, you know, J- James has I know some thoughts on 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 the, the panic over the leak uh, and the way it, it kind of tears down that last curtain of that something important and serious is going on there.
0: I'm also hoping, James, that you'll tell us what legitimacy means, maybe no pressure
1: i think it means whatever we say it means right isn't that like i say that's legitimate and therefore what you think if you disagree with me is illegitimate so therefore i I win that's illegitimate
2: you 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 can't you you, as a white man you cannot say what
1: is legitimate yes yes Yes. (laughs) so that's i think a very good depiction of uh, uh how we use and weaponize the concept of legitimacy not to mean that it doesn't exist of course it exists of course things are legitimate and are not legitimate. But I think a lot of the time when we hear this word in our uh, our discourse, it's more along these lines. You know, thinking about the Supreme Court real quick, you know, I think it's important just to take a step back <clears throat> and ask ourselves, what is the job of the court? We just assume we start from this position uh, that we have this idea. And it, I think it helps to articulate that. Put it in words, say it, be specific about it. What is its job? Is it a bunch of People in rogues sitting on Mount Olympus with lightning bolts in their hands, looking down at the plains of Troy, smiting people left and right and then having a good time and ruling from on high. Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think many people in this room, probably even if you react to my depiction of it just now, on the left and the right have that view. Or is it one of three branches of government that has a particular job? When Roberts says balls and strikes, it's interesting. I used to work for one of the many members I worked for was uh, Senator Jeff Sessions, and he was at the Judiciary Committee, and the balls and strikes comment came out of our meeting with Roberts prior to the hearing, and Sessions said, you call balls and strikes. And then, like, Robert's like, okay, and then that's what he said in the hearing, and I remember after the meeting, I was giving the senator a hard time, because I'm like, is that his job? Like, is he an umpire? Because if you think about what an umpire does, they are enforcing the rules of a game that have been decided elsewhere by other people on the players in the game. When the players in the game in our political system ultimately are the ones who make the rules, who write the rules, who live by the rules, and who break the rules and change the rules and get rewarded or punished for it accordingly. That concept of balls and strikes takes the court outside of the political system and puts it on high and basically says you are now in charge of enforcing this thing and that is something i think that you know there's good in that and there's and there's not so good in that so what is the court's job is it to make law or is it to adjudicate decisions between parties or adjudicate cases if it's to make law where is it written down right where i ask my students where is roe v wade written down show me the statute show me the code show me something and they're like i mean where is it and they're like oh well here's a decision I'm like, well, that decision's talking about this particular case with these particular parties. And last time I watched Judge Judy, if you're in the courtroom, you have to deal with the judge. If you're not in the courtroom, then it is what it is. Like, I'm not a party to this dispute. So why does this dispute relate to me? What extends that judge's power over me? So then you say, okay, well, that's clearly not right. And I agree. That is a little bit too far. So then the question is, well, how do you adjudicate cases between parties? How does that become law? And it becomes law because we are a nation of law and we have respect for law. And so when a judge like on the Supreme Court writes an opinion and says, this is how I decided this case, we as good law abiding people can look at that and say, "Okay, now I know how to adjust my future behavior. I know that if I open um, an abortion clinic, if Roe v. Wade is struck down and this state that I'm in says I can't do that, then I'm going to get taken to court. I'm going to go to jail. Maybe I'll get taken to court. And then there's going to be a process that plays out. And because of the Supreme Court decision, I know how I am going to end up in that process. And so, or how I'm likely to end up because courts can always change their mind. And so therefore I myself am voluntarily going to adjust my behavior accordingly. That's how a court's decisions become law. It's not that they're ruling you from on high. So we have to start from that premise and adjust our understanding of the court, and then we can begin to say, okay, now how do we then fit it into our system, and how do we relate to it?
0: Yeah, I I think that makes sense, and I think that that we keep we keep getting back to this question on this podcast. And your your line, James, is I think really a good one about in America nobody rules, but I think in practice a lot of people in this country do feel like they're being. ruled. Um, and, you know, one of the points I wanted to make about this r- involves federalism, which the students have already heard me talk a whole lot about. But I think that that was one of the the sort of outcomes of this decision. I don't have an answer. This is one of the other things we like to say in this podcast is we like to generate more questions than answers. And this is really going to be that. One kind of question that that I have is this disconnect in understandings of federalism, where on the one hand, so the leaked opinion said this issue will go back to the states where it belongs, which is the closest unit of government to the people. And that all makes sense in theory that that would that would be kind of the way to deal with divisive issues is to sort of let states reflect their populations and let states go in different directions. And in some policy areas, that makes a lot of sense. But when you start to see the way that that's developing on the abortion issue, it doesn't seem tenable right? It doesn't seem like something that is that is sustainable. So I wonder if anyone wants to comment on federalism and then I'm going to move us to talking about reforms to the court. And then we've got a ton of great questions. So we're going to do uh, our first session ever of live Q&A.
2: Ooh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> can't wait to get back yeah, to that. But we we'll have to bloviate for a little longer about federalism.
0: You're gonna, you,
2: you get a little bit to bloviate. Uh, okay. Okay. So I'm going to cut you off though. Okay, please cut me off if I go on too long. So, uh, federal and, and th- there is this. I...
1: Okay, it's too long. <sighs>
2: Illegitimate. Uh,
1: uh... Lee's going to say something critical I, about federalism.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I am. You know, I am going to say something federal, something critical about federalism, because this idea that we should just let Tennessee be Tennessee or Georgia be Georgia, like ignores the fact that there are multiple Tennessees and multiple Georgias, right? I mean, what the values that people in rural Georgia have are very different than the values that people in Atlanta have. So if, you know, Brian Kemp uh, gets reelected as governor, and with like 51%, like what about the 49% who voted for Stacey Abrams, like, should they just shut up and not be allowed to have abortions? If they, you know, I mean, like, so, so like, this is the question is like, if you believe in the, in the principle of government should be closest to the people, then you probably want to believe in subsidiary that maybe Atlanta should have its own rules. And you know, the, the, the Western Georgia should have its own rules. But like, at, at what level does, does that, you know, just wind up being too much fracture? So like, why are why are states the appropriate level? Uh, given that American politics is so nationalized, and given that there's real division in values between people who live in cities versus people who live outside of cities, and that people who live outside of cities seem to have tremendous hostility towards the people who live in cities. And maybe maybe it in goes vice, the
1: other way, yeah, too. I think it's too outcome-oriented. I think we have to recognize the space in which politics occurs. And we have to think back to the problem, right? I mean, you know, as a good conservative, I'm supposed to sit here and tell you the states are always the answer. And that's not true. That's not true. After the revolution, we had our, written, our first written constitutions in America. We had a weak national government and the states were running roughshod over the rights of their minorities and the rights of individuals. And that's a big problem because it meant that they were they were ruling. The majorities were ruling in those states. They weren't allowing people to participate in politics whether you're a Baptist in Virginia. Virginians hated the Baptists. They were like locking them up whenever they could get the chance, right? And so how do you ensure that the Baptist in Virginia in the 1780s can participate in politics? Because that's what freedom is all about, the ability to participate, the ability to participate in self-government. The federal government in the Constitution is the institutional solution to that. It creates a space where these decisions can be made, not all decisions. And I want you to think not as a hierarchy of like the federal government and then states, but more like a, two, like a Venn diagram. And on one side, you got the federales, and on the other side, you got the states. And in the middle, you got the concurrent powers where they overlap, okay? And so the question should be, what belongs when they overlap? And then the supremacy clause tells us when that happens, the federal government is the one who ultimately prevails. And then what belongs on the federal side and what belongs in the state side? And we need to look to the Constitution for that. We need to look to our kind of landmark statues over time, things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 65. We need to look at things and make that determination. But it's not a given that everything, just because we may not like a policy decision, however serious, and look, this is a hard deal. When you're dealing with global warming and you think the world's going extinct, you don't want to trust politics to deal with the issue. When you think life begins at conception or you think that women ought to have the right to choose, you do not want politics to deal with that issue. Why? Because that means you have to allow people that you disagree with the opportunity to debate, argue with you, put you in positions that you find untenable, and maybe lose. But that's the name of the game. And that's what our system does. It creates a lot of different spheres for people to participate in the act of self government. And too often we think about our solutions in terms of how do I eradicate those fears and how do I ensure that my policy outcome is the one that wins and that's the end not this is my goal and I'm going to try to fight like hell, excuse my language, to make this thing happen. They're two different mentalities. And so I think this is a good question. And as a good conservative, I'm, you know, I would prefer Roe v. Wade not to be there. I agree with that. But I also don't want to say, okay, now by fiat, I don't think anybody should ever have the opportunity to debate this question. If I lose that debate in a state legislature, or if I lose that debate in Congress, if they have the authority to do it, then I lose that debate. But this is a debate we should have. It's similar to campaign finance and all these other questions. Just because something's important doesn't mean that there's an answer. And if, even if there is an answer, the Supreme Court doesn't get to rule that the sun rises in the south.
2: But, but that's, I mean, this is where rights
1: come in, right?
2: I mean, that, that there are certain certain rights that the government can't infringe on.
1: Of right? course, I mean, but a, a, who decides a, what those rights are? How well, do they decide and where do they decide? And is it me and Lee? I would love that power to decide and then rule by fiat and say, this is a right. You all have to comply. Or, I mean, it's an imperfect science.
2: Right, right. So, but I mean, the idea is y- you have to balance like majority rule and personal rights. And that's the that's the challenge. And, and you know, I mean. Like
1: creating a space where no one can rule.
2: Oh, uh, this, so this is, is, like, this is... Like, like, like turtles all the way down here.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the problem. So this gets us to the question that I wanted to pose back to kind of the, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. I ended my semester with this at, at Marquette, is my students had a lot of questions about the decision and we were kind of looking at this recent Pew Research poll. What I thought was interesting about this, so just to contextualize people's attitudes about the Supreme Court, it is losing favorability with both parties, which is kind of which is kind of astounding. A lot of for a lot of institutions, public opinion moves in opposite directions for Republicans and Democrats. Both Republicans and Democrats are losing favorability for the court. It's still actually above water, um, higher favorables than unfavorables as of this spring. That might change over the summer. Ooh, that's good. Change, um, yeah. yeah, I think it, it might. But it, but it's remarkable to be above water in 2022, honestly. So that's sort of our context is Americans are losing their sort of Sense of favorability of the court. Um, so one thing that we kind of hear about, and this fits in with the, the question I posed earlier about accountability, right? Legitimacy is impossible to define, but accountability is a little more concrete. Like how you know how can institutions be checked and reined in right and so I have a couple of proposals one thing we used to do a lot on this podcast was talk about reform proposals so I'm going to throw out a couple of them and let us let us talk through so we got mandatory retirement age justices over a certain age have to retire term limits um, after a certain number of years of service you have to retire electoral accountability that's what i have a feeling you're both going to yell at me but in some states they do have like they have retention elections for judges i live in wisconsin we vote for everything nobody is allowed to breathe unless the whole state has voted on it twice we have a nonpartisan primary and then we have a, another election so we elect our judges and some states i think kansas has retention elections so they're appointed and then they run for Kind of re-election, yes or no? What's There's the also with what's
1: that? What's the matter with Kansas? Oh man!
0: Mm. Uh, don't let me start. So, um not on Kansas, on Thomas Frank. Curbing jurisdiction. This is a little wonkier, right? But this is another kind of court thing that people have talked about, which is limiting what what it can do. So, what what are some pros and cons of these possible reforms? Should we make the Supreme Court just more more limited in its kind of institutional power? What do you think?
1: I mean. You could also take away their building. John <laughs> Roberts used to call all the time and say uh, to Sessions when he was running the Judiciary Committee, and he would ask for pay raises for the judges, and Sessions you know, being Sessions would be like, why do you want more money? You know? <laughs> and he would say, I could take away your building. <laughs> they used to meet in the in the basement of of, of the Capitol. Yeah. It's just an interesting concept, you know. Like yeah, we yeah. do have term limits. I mean, it's called death, number one. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is the idea that we're you are all on term for limited forever. I mean, we're all term limited. I served on a commission with a uh, Yale Law Professor uh, Judith Resnick, who's a past uh, uh, um, previous guest yes. uh, yeah. guest, and uh, some federal judges, former federal judges, current state judges as well on the confirmation process, and they brought up term limits and. Uh, I made the question in one of our meetings. Like, well, we're all term limited, and she just cracked up. She was <laughs> like, I mean, sure, we, we have a sell-by date. So, I, like,
2: term limits, absolutely. Age limits, absolutely. The, the U.S. is the only country in the world that that has neither term limits nor age limits for its its judiciary. So, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I would say nobody should be in public elected or you know political life after the age of say 80. I mean I mean there, there is I mean some people are sharp until they're 100 but like I mean have you seen the president like he's definitely lost a few steps. Uh, <laughs> you know he's a little a l- little confused <laughs> these days I think.
0: It, it blows my mind when I'm 80 I'm gonna hopefully <laughs> I'm gonna be sitting in a rocking chair knitting by the lake and I don't want to hear from anybody. Uh, um, I'm gonna
2: be writing books.
0: Of course you are. That's it. So, okay, what about electoral accountability? I really try I'm really trying to throw bombs here.
2: Yeah, all right. Stand back everybody.
1: Well, uh, this look, none of the question is if the court does what the court's supposed to do, are these things even needed? James Madison nominates several justices one that don't ultimately agree to serve. One justice that James Madison nominates like they the Senate literally confirms the justice. They tell the justice, I mean the new justice and these like whoa, I don't want that job. I'm not saying that we shouldn't want that job, but when we think about the court as a ruling from on high on mount olympus who doesn't want to go to work every day put on a robe and grab a lightning bolt like that's awesome yeah but if like then all of a sudden you might have to talk about reforms because it seems odd so on one hand it's like we on both sides of the aisle are pushing issues to the court we expect the court to be the final arbiter which is just another word for a ruler right when somebody has the ultimate say over what is right or wrong that someone is a ruler and so we think of them like that and then we're like oh my god why are they doing things like this we got to control them somehow when i don't know if our system in the the structure is necessarily flawed. I think it's how we approach the court. If we continue to think of the court like we do on the left and the right, which is essentially a judicial supremacy type view, then yeah, I think we do need to dramatically rethink the institutional structure. But Jeffersonians come into office after winning the 1800 election, and they literally wipe out an entire level of the judiciary. And these lifetime appointed judges, they're like, wait, we still have lifetime appointments. And it's like, so we just got rid of your office. You can strip jurisdiction. If you don't want Roe v. Wade to get overturned, then why didn't Democrats in Congress pass a law that raised the number of justices required to grant cert to nine instead of four? They let the court decide that now. The Constitution gives the Congress, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2, the authority to make its rules. It doesn't give the courts that. Congress gets to decide how the courts operate. Congress gets to decide how the executive branch operates. Quit complaining about the court if you don't like Roe v. Wade and pass a law that says nine justices have to agree to hear a case on Roe v. Wade. Take the jurisdiction away from the court. Pass a law when you control both branches of government and the White House. Pass a law that says that the court can't hear cases dealing with Roe v. Wade, or if they overturn, whatever it may be. There are lots of different solutions. Take away their building. Like You can do all kinds of different stuff before we then have to say, okay, now we have this new reality, so how can we readjust? But I agree with you, Julia, that if we are going to live in this new reality, the current institutional structures don't work. We have to adjust and say, how do we control our new ruler? We know how to deal with political bodies. Make the court bicameral. Give them different constituencies. We know how to do that. Turn court into Congress. We but know who how to structure that. are their constituencies?
0: I think that's the, the question with the court. I, I mean, I like this mm-hmm. idea of making it bicameral just to like, just to stir things
1: up. Make a sortition. I was, I think I've told you this story. I was talking to some Germans once and they were talking about sortition. I thought they were saying Saturn and I'm like, I don't know what Mm. a French dessert wine that happens to be delicious has anything to do with the Supreme Court. But sure, I guess it could help if we got them drunk. But, you know, they were talking about it and then it's like, oh, we could take Appellate court justices who all have lifetime tenure, put them in like a big thing on national television. Just draw names oh, out. I yeah, love okay. that you're love on the court that. now because yeah, I mean, yeah. the chief justice yeah. is the only person who has to be there, but the Constitution. So just put them in there and pull out a name. Like you have been already confirmed. Now you're going to go do a tour of duty on the Supreme Court for two years. That right. instantaneously or, or, right. changes everything.
2: Or, or you yeah, know, I mean, do that for the the circuit plus plus the Saturn. Right. I mean, every every six months, you know, get you know, rotate. Right. Th- this is this is really. I like this proposal because what, what is happening in the court is that people are bringing cases with like justices in mind. Well, the
1: problem is you can't control it. And this is why the right. left and the right don't like this because right. they want to control the court because it's easier – To get the court to make a decision, to win a presidential election, get a nominee, make the court to get a decision than it is to – when was the last – we don't amend the Constitution anymore. 19th Amendment, how – you are like struggling for 100 – like over 100 years to try to get this thing through. Why would you – you don't even – you're a chomp if you do it that way now. You just go to the court. Tell tell people what the 19th Amendment is. It's the uh, the Vietnam pay raise, right? No, <laughs> it's the
2: suffrage. It's the. Well, it's I think mean, everybody might know.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: yeah, it's women's suffrage. Yes. I know. I was just talking with one of my colleagues about this. That there's this was funny because they were saying our students don't have any sense that the Constitution can be amended. I'm like, I don't. I've it's only been hard. alive, I think, for it's, one constitutional amendment. It's
1: hard. And that yeah. one was originally really passed in like. Oh, what? The, the, yeah, like, like 789. Seven, like tell, tell people what the last amendment was.
0: Yeah, tell was. people what the 27th amendment was. Well, I,
1: don't, I mean, is that the one where it's they... Not. It's the pay raise amendment. And this amendment... Congressional the last, pay raise. Yeah, the last yeah, one we... Congress
2: from voting on its own. Yeah, it's, it's giving itself a pay raise for the current Congress. So when you
1: write down your constitutions, you need a way to amend them. It makes sense. And so we have Article 5 that lays out a very ar- arduous, but still easily... Like, not easily, but still possible. We the got U.S. is the members. hardest constitution to amend. Well, I think, still, but the bottom line is we have this or process... And people used to do it. And so the 26th Amendment was part of the Bill of Rights. There were 12 amendments that were ultimately submitted to the states. Ten of them get cleared. One of them happens to be the Pay Raise Amendment. And that one just kind of languishes out there. The other rule is Equal Rights Amendment, people, if you like the Equal Rights Amendment, this is the rule. Don't put an expiration date in your – if you ever write a constitutional amendment, do not write an expiration date. Because then the Pay Raise Amendment never would have happened. And so eventually it gets ratified. Ever, I can't do the math, but like a long time later. Yeah, it's like long long time about 200
2: to like years over 200 years yeah but but I I love the the sortition I mean let's you know increase the number of justices who are who are on the circuit courts keep keep rotating them I mean you, you just got to make it so you can't game it because it's that then it's unpredictable that's right and then, I'm and, and, you know and then then you might lose you might win but you know it's gonna lead to less judicial overreach because then things could be reversed and you know it's just if we don't know what the outcome is you can't game the system.
0: I think that's right. I mean, I think I'm sort of sitting here thinking, okay, the sortition—the idea of going and watching someone pull names out of the lottery ball on TV to you be on do the it Supreme with impeachments court. too, just randomly it's impeach bad. whoever
1: you pull out of the. Just,
0: it's it sounds right. It sounds like a blast to watch, but I'm trying to think like, what problem does this solve? I think the problem wow. it solves is that Draft it, day. exactly what Lee said. It sort of it takes it away from letting the president and the president's party stack the court with with ideologically sympathetic nominees, which it used to be sort of like. That used to be, I think, the way the court did things but light. We had a light version of that. And it wasn't totally predictable if you put someone on the court how they would rule on a bunch of different decisions. You know, Henry Blackman, who was the um the wrote the Roe v. Wade decision, was Appointed by Nixon was not seen as a sort of, you know, liberal social crusader.
1: Unlike Nixon.
0: Right. <laughs> Nixon, also a very complicated political figure, but I'm actually going to talk to you all about Nixon tomorrow. Ooh, so don't get doing. excited. But, okay, so I want to actually start moving on to some of the, the Q&A that we've got. and Which I,
1: makes us more legitimate than the court.
0: Exactly. I'm going to take, right, we're taking public question input. Question time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the first question, and I'm going to give my answer and see if either of you have a different answer. So the first question is, how did this podcast come into existence? And my my version of the origin story is I was spending the semester in Washington, D.C. And I was on a panel on Capitol Hill with James, who I only knew from Twitter. And then I knew Lee and Lee kind of wandered by. And the two of them were like, I think we're going to start a podcast. And I said, I'm going to join you. I didn't ask. (laughs) I just told them. And then we met for a really long lunch and hammered out what we thought the podcast would be. And we have our, our wonderful sound person, Shannon Lynch, and our wonderful producer, Elizabeth Lucero, who have joined us at various points along the journey, and we became a podcast. So that's my story of the uh, our origin story. Do either of you remember it I differently?
1: Mean, that's correct. But I think there's, there's a lot more color to it. <laughs> Lee and I were having an argument about the size of the house after this panel in the basement of the Capitol. And I, he was completely wrong. And I said, you know, somebody should probably record that. We should just record this and like, listen to it later and let other people listen to it. And then I think you were like, let's have a podcast. I was completely right. And then, I said, well, he's I don't like, think "You're both
0: wrong." on and this And then issue. Julia's <laughs> like, "I would like to be
1: involved." And we're like, "Thank, thank heavens, we got like an adult. Like, <laughs> somebody can be in charge here."
0: <laughs> it's really a lot of
2: pressure no, that nobody ruins this podcast. No one would handle. listen
1: to our podcast if Julia wasn't here. We would still be on the first episode. <laughs> we would still be recording a first. Episode. That's, that's true
2: about that. We'd be on the third
0: episode. There's no way. Um, there's no it way.
1: It would be like a um, like the Lord of the Rings movie. So it's the
0: rule of three. You need three. You need three. So if someone has asked three us, hours. What are episode. the most politics and questions questions ever? And I love it. And I'm trying to find the exact wording. Um, yeah. So American government seems to be risk averse to ideas that could potentially fix or improve social and economic policies. Why do you think this is? Like this is really our this I've thought a lot about this when with you, Lee, since we've been in conversation several times about some of your ideas about electoral reform. Why are why do it it seem like the American system is so kind of stuck and difficult to change?
2: Well, it's a system that is designed to privilege the status quo. I mean, the, the U.S. system has more veto points than any other system. It's a very complicated machinery, which is-
0: design. Want to give us a quick veto point definition? Yes,
2: okay. So s- bill starts in the House, right? So, okay. So now you've got to, you know, so that that's point that's point one. Uh, then it has to go to the Senate. So that's bicameralism. That's another veto point. Then there's uh, the presidency, and, and the president has a veto. Uh, if, it would just
1: be so much easier if there was a ruler without any vetoes.
2: Well, Just, I mean, there's a balance here, right? You know, I mean, uh, I mean, I, you know, the, like maybe two vetoes is, is the right number. But then, you know, now we got three. And then there's the Supreme Court, which we're talking about, which, you know, factually ha- has a veto. Over has the video. Of, has, veto. Veto, right. Has yeah. a be- veto. And also, you know, the states can say, you know, screw you, Washington. We're going to do our own thing. And you go ahead and enforce that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's even five veto points. i mean it, it's it's a system that is set up to make change not happen for a while. But then when it happens, it's like a like a big shift. So I mean, it, it you know this this is this idea uh, of uh, you know punctuated equilibrium, which is that things stay it, it stasis for a long time, but then then there are moments when we like do really big things and we really transform our system. Uh, and then it becomes hard to undo those things because the system is very status quo
1: focused. This so. is the, I'm in awe. I'm in absolute awe. I mean, look, America's not perfect. It wasn't perfect at the founding. It's not perfect today. God knows. And hopefully we can, by participating in politics, make it ever more perfect, and our union no. ever more perfect. But if we step back and think about what we have done in this nation via politics, in this system, with all of these veto points, I am in awe. I'm in absolute awe of the things that have happened here without, I mean, yes, and there's been violence and there's been bloodshed, but without the level of change that this country has witnessed. And then look around the world and look for that same level of political policy change elsewhere, and you're not going to find it. You're not not without bloodshed, not without... Ma- I mean, we've had the Civil War, we've had some other we've stuff. We've had bloodshed. <laughs> but, I mean, let's just stop and think about this for a second. And Think violence. about the population of this country moving westward. Think about the development of communications and, and infrastructure technology. Think about education. Think about the, 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 the 60s and 70s. With all of these veto points, when everybody's flexing their muscles to the nth degree and we have vetoes and we have holds and filibusters and, and activist groups and everybody's trying to win... And it is the period of legislative productivity that has been unsurpassed in this nation's history. I think, why are we so risk averse? It's not because the president has a veto. It's not because the Senate exists. If that were the case, then we always would have been risk reverse. The problem is that we think about politics in a way today that is different from the way our system is designed. We think about politics as it's a factory and The way you control a factory, we think about outcomes. This is the outcome we want, so therefore we got to make that happen. And so everything that goes into that is key. So how do you control a factory? You control the means of production. How do you control the means of production in politics? You win elections. Everything becomes about elections. And then anything that would somehow make it harder for a political party, and this is where I agree with Lee a little bit, anything that makes it harder for a political party to win that election gets pushed away gets suppressed and so we get this idea that we get these two monolithic parties when they're anything Mm -hmm. but and we end up not doing anything and then we demonize the other side when in reality there's like i'm not sure like i mean i work for jeff sessions mike lee and pat toomey uh, directly amongst others those are three very conservative people and they do not agree on anything they Nothing. agree that they hate the Democrats, but but, but for, to <laughs> what I mean. But if we had a, I mean, they don't agree on tax reform. They don't agree on immigration. They do not agree on health care. They don't agree on any of the major issues that are facing America. They don't agree on guns. Like you just go down the list. But why is it that we look at them on one hand and we're like, okay, they're like identical, but they're not. But the, why don't we have a system that would reveal those nuances?
2: Yeah, that's why I want I want more political parties. But also, I mean, to, I mean, we we have done a lot of things. But we also have not done a lot of things. We 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 had you know almost a hundred years of, of of Jim Crow in the South because we couldn't pass things through all the veto Great. points. I mean it's
1: not, and I'm not. I'm look. I'll be the first so, one to tell you it is. If you are a woman struggling for the right to vote, if you are a person who's living in slavery, if you are in Jim Crow South, it is un- intolerable. I get it. I'm not saying that, and I understand the position that I'm in now. But look, I do think uh-huh. though that. If you think about it, and this is what Madison tells us in, in Federalist 51, yes, yeah, sometimes things can happen more quickly with rulers, and I wish that they were to happen more quickly on lots of things in this country, both then and now. But at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, ruling goes both ways. Yeah. It goes both ways. And if you have a system that allows you to do change quickly, it the Constitution isn't about limiting government. That's what conservatives will tell you. It's not. It's not about that. It's about empowering government. It's about empowering and constituting government and having power. That's the whole debate over the Mm -hmm. Constitution. How do we make the government more powerful? But simultaneously, how do we make sure that it doesn't abuse that power? And how do we make sure that a group of people don't marshal it and then use it to eradicate the space where politics occurs? And there is a balance to that. And you do have a trade-off. And sometimes things are good, holy, just, and true. But... They're still like the opposite is also a constitutional. And so it is incumbent upon us to do what people like Martin Luther King and others do ever since time ta- is to take to the streets and to go to the spaces where politics occurs and to fight to change things, not to destroy that space and then change things.
0: So I wanna jump in and answer this question yes, also. I, I'm curious what you have um, to say this question of why, why is America so risk averse? I think I buy the premise a little bit more than the two of you. I I don't think it's strictly about institutions. I mean, this is frequently an argument we have on this podcast. In some ways, my role in this podcast is often to challenge the the institutional premise. um, And to talk about some of the problems in the United States that go beyond the institutional structures. So I think one of the things that has happened and Actually, first I want to acknowledge that I sort of agree with James in the sense that I think that given the size, she and says that
1: every time he, diversity,
0: I every, yeah, I every time it. I love it's it. so surprising, but it keeps happening. You know, it, it is I think helpful. Or it is, I think, kind of astounding that a country on our sort of size and scale and diversity has done as much as it has. We're really the only country other than India and Brazil, which are really different kind of contexts, trying to do democracy on the the population scale that we are. The other thing that I want to say, though, is I think that the reason we are so risk averse, particularly in this modern era, I see this as actually really distinct in the era that we're in. And when I do historical research, I'm often astounded by the types of reform proposals and the political imagination that people have and the ways in which we are really cautious and nervous about our political imagination now. And I think some of that comes from a sense of economic inequality and it comes from a sense of I really see among among my students, and I see this among a variety of people in the United States, the sense that that the system is rigged against you in various ways. Right. A sense that the economic system in particular, there are a lot of ways your life can go really, really wrong and not that many effective ways that that ordinary people can really achieve stability or that people can climb the economic ladder. I think that makes people risk averse at every level. And I think that it makes people kind of think about how systemic changes react to proposals of systemic changes in ways that they assume that those changes will ultimately, in the end, screw them over. And I, I think that that's something we see a lot. And it's something that we probably need to think more about in the broadly construed political reform community is how how people's sense of insecurity and risk and loss constrains the potential for for reform. Um, So we have we have about three more minutes and I want to really do like a a really quick lightning round for the two of you, knowing that a lightning round with the two of you is like a Wagnerian opera. um, It's like eight (laughs) hours Um, of one of our students has posed the question, what's the biggest problem in American politics? I think this is a good this is a good and somewhat depressing way to to end.
2: You know, I mean, now I got to be on brand if I'm going to be brief here it's the kale salad it, it, it's the it's the kale kale salad um, it's it's the two party system and the binary way in which it leads us to think about politics in a in an us versus them zero sum way
0: all right james lightning round you have 1 minute cuz i also want to answer
1: we're all marxists No, but I mean that in the sense that we look at history, we look at politics like Marx did. We see it as a production process. It's not just the people in office. It's everybody. It's all of us. We want to build widgets. We want to control the factory. We think about means and ends. And we no longer see that space where politics occurs. We see something we want to conquer and rule and wield. I don't care if you're a conservative or a progressive. When I look out at the landscape of American democracy today, I see nothing but agreement. And it horrifies me and it scares me and it keeps me up at night. This is the problem. We have to look in the mirror. The reason why the 60s happened was because everybody was upset and everybody took to the streets and everybody took to Congress and protested and called their representatives and said, we want action. And then they expected them to go and try to win in those arenas. Today, we say, we don't want action. We want to control the arena. And as long as we have that mentality, we're not going to kick people out of office who say one thing and do another because they were going to say, oh, well, the, the alternative is so much worse. People in the civil rights proponents were, didn't have that option. They knew that if they didn't aggressively act on this, that their voters were going to kick them out. Why? Because they wanted them to act. And so it starts with us. It always starts with us. And if you want to change the world, you need to get up out of bed in the morning, put your feet on the ground, and go change the world. Don't try to rule the world. That's not America. We don't have rulers in America. The minority not getting its way or the majority not getting its way is not majority rule or minority rule. That's the point. No one gets their way here. So I think,
0: again, my answer is sort of weirdly going to agree with, with James. Um, and I'm giving myself the last word because that's just what I'm doing. I think that the, the biggest problem in America today is the concentration of power. And I think that's the, the institutions that we have need to be the mechanism to spread that power around. And that's the, the thing that we need to demand from our institutions. So I think in 45 minutes with some great questions from the students, I think we've solved America's problems. Um, I think we did. You're all out of So big thanks to the Washington Center, to Shannon, to Elizabeth, um, and to all of you.
2: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.